Deuteronomy chapter 10, verses 12 through 22. Uh, Christopher Wright, who has written a helpful commentary on the book of Deuteronomy, uh, says that this is undoubtedly one of the richest passages in all of the Old Testament. And he says so because it boils down the, the whole theological and ethical content of this book into a few verses. And so uh, Wright refers to this passage as a mini symphony of faith and life. So let's listen closely to that mini symphony now as we hear God's word. Deuteronomy 10 verses 12 through 22. And now Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you? But to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to keep the commandments and statutes of the Lord which I am commanding you today for your good. Behold, to the Lord your God belong heaven and the heaven of heavens, the earth with all that is in it, Yet the Lord set his heart in love on your fathers and chose their offspring after them, you above all peoples as you are this day. Circumcise, therefore, the foreskin of your heart and be no longer stubborn. For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, And the awesome God, who is not partial and takes no bribe. He executes justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. Love the sojourner, therefore, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. You shall fear the Lord your God. You shall serve him and hold fast to him. And by his name you shall swear, he is your praise. He is your God who has done for you these great and terrifying things that your eyes have seen. Your fathers went down to Egypt, 70 persons, and now the Lord your God has made you as numerous as the stars of the heavens." I want you to imagine standing on the summit of a great mountain peak. You've come to the Himalayas. You've ascended through the foothills. You've gone through base camp. You're using oxygen now because of the altitude. And after climbing peak after peak, you've reached the summit, the top of the world. And it happens to be a clear day. And so you can see 360 degrees all around you. I just saw a photo of somebody standing on the top of Mount Everest on a clear day. And you could see the curvature of the earth in the photo. I'm painting that picture because that's where we are in the book of Deuteronomy. It's where we are in this passage. If Deuteronomy could be understood in terms of topography... This passage is a high peak in scripture, like people have often spoken of Romans chapter 8 as the Mount Everest of the Bible. This is surely one of the all-time 
high points in both the Old Testament and New Testament because few passages provide a, a more breathtaking vista than what we find here. No other passage in the Old Testament contains a deeper or wider or more all-encompassing description of what God requires of his people and why he requires it. And so I want us to consider this high peak of divine revelation this morning by asking two basic questions. First, what does the Lord require? Secondly, why does he require it? What does the Lord expect of his people? And what is the basis? What is the motivation for God's requirements? And notice Moses begins in verse 12 with the words, and now, and these words signal a key shift or turning point in Deuteronomy. Moses has used this end now turning point language before, back in Deuteronomy chapter 4. And they're meant to alert us that we're approaching the climax of Moses' second main address. After looking back on the history of, of God's people and his dealings with them and the covenant that the Lord made with his people at Mount Sinai, Moses now sums up everything that he has said to the people thus far. He gathers it up like light and in a prism, and he focuses, focuses that beam of light on what matters most, on what God is most concerned about, on what we might call the weightier matters of the law. He gathers up everything he said, and he focuses that beam on what matters most. Now, what, what does it mean for the people of God, to love the Lord their God with all of their heart and soul? What does it look like for the people of God to seek first the kingdom of God? What what does that mean? What does it look like? Well, Deuteronomy chapter 10, verses 12 through 22, gives the answer to this crucial set of questions. Moses piles up in these verses some of the most powerful and poetic and elevated language that we find in all of Deuteronomy. And I think the answer that he gives to these questions can be, can be summed up from two perspectives. Like Jesus, who, who summarized the two greatest commandments in terms of loving God and loving your neighbor as yourself. So Moses summarizes everything that God requires along a vertical and a horizontal axis. And if you want to wrap your mind around the full height and and breadth of the Lord's requirements according to Moses, I think it's helpful to focus on the two commandments that we find in verse 16 and in verse 19. And there's a whole lot going on in this passage. A lot of detail. But one way to understand the whole thing And to bring it together is to focus on the two commands in verse 16 and verse 19. Because these two commands contain the two extremes of what God requires both vertically in relation to God and horizontally in relation to other people. Verse 16 contains the deepest command in the book of Deuteronomy. And verse 19 
we could argue, contains the widest. So look at those two verses, verse 16 and verse 19. First, we are commanded to circumcise the foreskin of our hearts in verse 16. You might say, that's pretty deep. (laughs) Second, we are commanded to love the sojourner in verse 19. And that's That's pretty wide. That's pretty expansive. That's as deep and as wide as it gets. First, we are commanded to do open heart surgery on ourselves. And second, we are commanded to extend ourselves to outsiders. Within these two commandments, all of God's law is summed up. So let's take a closer look at these two commands and how they help us understand and embrace what God requires of us. First, what does it mean? What does it mean to circumcise your heart? You remember back in in Genesis chapter 17, God commanded Abraham and all of his male uh, children and all of the males in his household to be circumcised in the flesh by cutting off uh, the foreskin of the male reproductive organ. This was, a, this was a sign and seal of the covenant that God made with Abraham and his offspring. And you understand it was an incredibly intimate procedure. It required surgery on one of the most delicate parts of the body. But the command in Deuteronomy 10 verse 16 goes even deeper than Genesis 17. For here, the idea of circumcision is internalized. The true meaning and intent and significance of the outward sign is is being revealed here. This basic covenant idea of circumcision is spiritualized. And so the covenant that God made with his people was, was never intended to be a merely external matter of the flesh, of physical descendants Um, it was the sign of circumcision was never intended to merely be an outward ethnic marker it was always intended by God to go deep it was always supposed to correspond to a deeper spiritual reality reflecting the inward disposition of the heart now some folks think this doesn't really happen until the, the new covenant, right? Till we get to Jesus in the New Testament. But no, right? This is Deuteronomy chapter 10. This is what God requires above all else. A heart that is entirely open. A heart that is fully devoted and fully responsive and sensitive to God. We could say everything else must go under the knife. Anything that comes between your heart and love for God must be cut away. It must be cut off. But that's not all. God's law not only requires us to go deeper in our love for God than we could ever imagine, it also requires us to go far wider in our love for others than we might ever expect. But the sheer scope of God's commandments are humbling. They're meant to humble us as deep and as wide as you can fathom. Look at verse 19. We are 
to love the sojourner, Moses says. Here we discover that it was not enough for Israelites to only care about their fellow Israelites. Just as it's not enough for Christians to only care about fellow Christians. According to Daniel Block, an Old Testament scholar, who's written a really helpful commentary on Deuteronomy that I rely on week by week. He says, a sojourner refers to an outsider who has chosen to leave the security of family and homeland to try and make a living in a foreign country. That's his description of sojourner. And this is, this is what God's people are required to do. We are commanded to love the sojourner. But here's the kicker. This is where the challenge just becomes more intense. We are to love the sojourner not only as a matter of love, which is how I think we would think of it, but Deuteronomy chapter 10 teaches us that we are to love the sojourner as a matter of justice. It's a matter of justice. I think this is what's really challenging here. Loving the, the outsider, loving the sojourner, is not simply a matter of charity, according to Moses. It is a matter of justice. For when we read the command to love the sojourner in verse 19, we can't help but see that in the context where this command comes immediately after Moses' description of how God himself executes justice in verses 17 through 19. Take a look at those verses with me. There's a lot of talk about justice in our world today, isn't there? It's a hot topic. But what is it? What is justice? Look with me at how Moses' flow of thought runs through verses 17 and 18 first. For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God, who is not partial and takes no bribe. He executes justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. Love the sojourner, therefore, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. Now, I think it's right to say that when we hear the word justice, we, we typically think of something like equal treatment under the law, right? And we should. Should We think about justice in terms of a fair punishment. To be technical, we call that retributive justice. We think about fair procedures, the, the need for objectivity and impartiality in rendering judgments. For example, we talk about criminals receiving justice. Or we think about court systems being just because the process, at least it ought to be, the process used to make the decision is supposed to be fair. It's supposed to be impartial and unbiased. But when the actual term and the concept of justice is used in Scripture, it tends to go beyond this. Right? It includes those ideas, includes these things, but it goes even further. Right? So to be sure, biblical justice isn't anything less than equal treatment, fair and impartial punishments and procedures. You can look at Exodus 22 or 23 verses 2 and 3 and 
Leviticus 19, verse 15, and verses 35 and 36, and Proverbs 11, verse 1. All of these passages focus on procedural justice, equal treatment, and God's insistence on fair dealings. God cares deeply about those matters of justice. But biblical justice has always meant much more than that. And, you know, brothers and sisters, this is, this is something that I'm, I'm wrestling with and coming to terms with. Uh, last year, I read uh, Basil of Caesarea, early church father, a sermon that he wrote. And the title of the sermon is simply, To the Rich. And he's addressing members of his congregation who are better off, okay? And he's appealing to them to show love to those who are less fortunate. But what what kept striking me again and again as I'm reading through his sermon is he's making this appeal not on the grounds of charity, but on the grounds of justice. And I was left scratching my head. Why is he appealing to justice? Well, it's because he understood Deuteronomy chapter 10 better than I did. Better than I do, I'm sure. Biblical justice has always meant much more than just simply fairness and equal treatment. Fundamental to the far more expansive understanding of biblical justice is this notion of caring for the needy, caring for the oppressed. I think paradoxically we can go as far to say that God's impartiality makes him partial to the weak and needy. Check your Bibles on this. I think that's off base. God's impartiality makes him partial to the fatherless, to orphans, to widows, because he knows that this world is upside down and he will not leave it that way. It's the same God who is not partial in verse 17 who shows unique attention and special favor and selective generosity to the needy in verse 18. The God who is impartial is the God who does that. You see that in verse 18. He favors the fatherless and receives the rejected because he's not blind to the harsh inequalities of a fallen world and he won't stand for it he's he's going to do something about it thus if God himself is our standard of justice and he ought to be it would seem that justice not only requires us to act in ways that are fair but also in ways that are positively generous and restorative There's the rub, though, because if caring about the poor and needy, if Basil of Caesarea is is correct, then caring about the poor and needy, it is a matter of justice, and that means it's very, very, very easy for us to be guilty of profound injustice. Because all you got to do is do nothing. All you got to do is ignore the needs of people God has providentially placed in your life. All you have to do 
To be guilty of injustice is forget the fatherless, to neglect the needy. Don't, don't worry about widows. See, you, see how, you see how challenging this is. I want us to feel the weight of God's requirements. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this. Remember what the New Testament says. To visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. You see how consistent? We could look at boatloads of other passages to, to note this consistency. But let's just pull one from, from James. You see how consistent the scriptures are. Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is what? According to James 1.27. You see how it has these two aspects? It's first social, caring about orphans and widows. And second, we could say piety. To keep oneself unstained from the world because we are devoted to the Lord our God. One of the most striking features of Deuteronomy chapter 10 verses 12 through 22 is, and, and what it teaches us about biblical justice is really how inescapably theological it is. How inescapably theological justice is. It's one of the most striking things about this passage Moses piles up all of this exalted language, right? One divine superlative after another before he describes the God who is just and therefore acts justly. And it's kind of what the psalmist says, you are good and you do good. You are just and you act justly. God acts in accordance with who he is and justice is an attribute of God. And one of the points I think that we need to recognize and, and share with others as we have opportunity is that this God, the God of gods and the Lord of lords, is the ground for any appeal to justice. Simply put, there can be no secular basis for the kind of justice that is described here in Deuteronomy 10, that is both fair and generous. There can be no human basis for this kind of thinking. According to Moses, justice is inseparably bound up with this transforming and doxological vision of the God of gods and the Lord of lords who executes justice for the weak. You see, he is the foundation. He is the source of of justice. Justice is anchored in God himself. Uh, in, a, in his book, uh, Paul and the Power of Grace, an uh, important book that was written recently by John Barclay, he observes that while the American Declaration of Independence states, these words will be familiar to you, we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men were created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. John Barclay says, Nowadays, people in the West are not at all sure how these claims can be regarded as self-evident. So again, you've got to ask the question, where does, this, where does this come from? Where is the foundation for any notion of justice in human relations? And John Barclay goes on to point out in the more recently written United Nations uh, Universal Declaration of Human Rights, any references to God or the Creator are, are, are taken away. 
And we have this thin, baseless assertion. Here are the words. All human beings are born free and equal in dignity. They are endowed with reason and conscience and should act towards one another in a spirit of brotherhood. But that raises the question of, but why, right? Why, why do I need to treat you as my brother, especially if I don't like you? Especially if you don't agree with me? Especially if you're not my people? Especially if I view you as an outside, as, as an other? Especially if you don't belong to my camp, if you don't share my political views and my political takes? Why should I treat you as my brother? Our world doesn't have an answer to that question, brothers and sisters. There's no secular basis for appeals to this kind of justice apart from the God of gods and Lord of lords who is not partial and takes no bribes and who executes justice for the weak. And this brings us to the second question that I asked at the start. Okay, this is what God requires. Why does the Lord require this? We've seen what the Lord requires, that we, that we love God supremely and exclusively, that our hearts are entirely devoted to him, consecrated to him. And then we're called to love our neighbor by extension and even treat uh, as neighbors those that we're not naturally inclined to even think about or be concerned about. But come back to the question, okay, why? What is the basis for this requirement? I want you to see that these verses not only explain to us what God requires, but very clearly why he requires it. This passage, it not only lays out the demands of God's law, but it gives us the basis for our obedience, which really only appears when our eyes are open to see God's glory and his grace. This is, this is the most important part of our passage. I hope that gets your attention in light of everything we've said. This is the most important part of our passage. So look again at verses 14 through 16, where we discover the astonishingly good news that God gives what he demands and that his grace precedes the demand. Here we discover that God calls us to set our hearts in love upon him, to hold fast to him because that is precisely what he has already done for us. Because that's precisely what he has already done to us. He has set his love upon you. He holds you fast. He will not let you go. In verse 14, take a look at this. It's amazing. In verse 14, Moses calls us to behold the glory of God to whom all things belong. Behold. He's saying, look to the Lord your God. Belong heaven and the heaven of heavens the earth, and all that is in it. And of course, that alone should be enough, right? Um, if we are coming before a God who owns everything in heaven and on earth, including us, that ought to be enough to command our obedience. 
But look at what Moses says. He doesn't stop there. He actually just uses that reality to accent his main point in the next verse. Everything in heaven and on earth belongs to the Lord, yet the Lord, that God, the maker of heaven and earth who possesses all things, set his heart and love on your fathers and chose their offspring after them, you above all peoples as you are this day. You see, that's why you should circumcise your hearts. Verse 16, circumcise therefore the foreskin of your heart and be no longer stubborn. It is because he has set his love on you, beloved, that you should love him. I want to engage in a little thought experiment with you for a few minutes. Just, just imagine if you could have anything. Kids, I want you to, I want you to go with me here and, and think about this. Imagine that you could possess anything your heart desired. What would it be? What, what, what would you choose as your special treasure with your own name upon it? What would you pick for yourself as you know, the apple of your eye, your special possession? Anything. You know, maybe, maybe, maybe you, you'd want to own one of these big, powerful tech companies like Apple or Google. That'd be pretty cool. Um, what about, uh, you know, natural wonder of the world? Maybe, maybe you want to claim the Grand Canyon for yourself or have Yosemite National Park as your backyard. And sign, sign me up for that one. I'm all in. We're thinking too small. Let's, let's go bigger. Why, why limit yourself to just one plot of, why not a whole country? Uh, you, want, you want the United States? You want New Zealand? You want Africa? I'll do you one even better. Why not planets? Right? Galaxies. You want a galaxy named after you? Or maybe, maybe, maybe it's a, a group of people that you want to identify with. The, the smart ones, the inventors, the artists. You know, the box and the, the take, take your, your favorite figure from history and you say, those are my people. Those are my special possession. What would you choose? Would you choose you? Because that's what God chose. See, that's the, that's the wonder of the gospel. That's the wonder of what's being communicated in this passage, do you, do you believe that? Do you really believe that? Here we discover that the God who owns everything, it's already his, chose you to be his treasured possession. He chose to put his name upon you. And when you come to behold the incomprehensible glory and grace of that gift of belonging and all that it means for all eternity, the gift of being known and loved, the gift of being brought in and embraced, when we come to experience that gift, then a razor-sharp knife is unsheathed, and it cuts everything else away. Have you ever come under the knife? Have you come under that sharp blade? It, it pierces 
the heart. It cuts deep and it will cause your cold, dead heart to beat again by grace through faith in Jesus. That is the circumcision of the heart. That's why we read Colossians chapter 2 earlier. Paul tells, think about this, a new church made up of a bunch of Gentiles. Okay, so understand the context here. Paul's writing to a bunch of uncircumcised Gentile believers who've come to faith in Christ. And though they have never been physically circumcised, Paul says you've been circumcised. We get Colossians chapter 2. He says you've been circumcised in him, in your union with Jesus Christ. He explains in verse 11 and following, in him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh, get this, by the circumcision of Christ. What's that? That's the question you should be asking. What's the circumcision of Christ? When and how did that happen to these Gentile believers? When and how does it happen to us? The answer is that it happened at the cross where Christ himself, the true son of God, the Lord of lords, Israel's promised Messiah, the Christ, was cut off and cast out. So that outcasts, so that strangers like you and me could be welcomed and brought in. Aliens like you and me could be welcomed into God's family. Here's how Paul makes the same point in Ephesians chapter 2, where he says, and I'm going to read a section of verses here so we understand the, the context and the message here. Paul says, remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, right? So Jews calling Gentiles the uncircumcision, um, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached, he, the he there is Christ, he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were strangers and aliens. Moses would say sojourners. But you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the house of God. Are you making the connection? Are you seeing the significance of Deuteronomy chapter 10 for us? No wonder, no wonder God commands his people to love the stranger, 
to care for the sojourner, God not only gives us commands, he tells us why. And this command makes total sense in the light of God's redeeming grace. No wonder the people of God are called to care for the weak and needy, for outsiders, because that's us. That's our own story. That is our own history. He wants us to be on the lookout for the needy and to be welcoming to strangers because that is precisely how God has acted towards us. It's where we come from. And if we don't understand that, then we really don't understand the depths of God's grace because it is our own history. So love the sojourner. For you were sojourners in the land of Egypt, Moses says. Those are his words. Remember, Paul says, how you were separated from Christ, alienated from the the people of God, strangers to God's covenant promises. Remember how you were without hope and without God in the world, but now you have been brought near and you have been brought in to belong by the blood of Jesus Christ. So love the sojourner. See the gospel logic of the command? And I wonder, I wonder, brothers and sisters, what would it look like if the people of God here at Trinity more fully adopted this mentality? What would that look like if we, if we came to terms with the fact that we were helpless, alone, separated, strangers, without hope and without God in the world. But the Lord God in Jesus Christ set his heart on us and redeemed us and brought us to himself and made us to belong. Ask yourself the question, what does that do to you? What does that do to your life? What would it look like in a world where people are dividing over just about anything today. In Christ, this is what we need to come to terms with, that in Christ, we have the resources. We already have the resources to be an otherworldly community that really does look different, really operates differently than the way people relate to one another in the world around us. The people of God not only have requirements, the good news is we have resources to love like this. Because at the end of the day, we have been loved like this. He's welcomed us in. He is our God who has done great things for us. And this is why Moses says, He is our praise. So love the Lord your God and do justice, and love the sojourner. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word this morning and all of its aspects for the ways that it reveals your character to us, for the ways that it challenges and exposes our sin and shortcomings, for the ways that it points us to your redeeming love and grace and for the ways that it directs us in our steps as the redeemed people of God to love the Lord our God and to love our neighbor 
as ourselves. Would you please take this word and conform us to it by your spirit so that your, your, uh, your will would be done more fully in us. That your will would be done more fully in us as a congregation. And we ask all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.